0: I want to start today by reading uh, another passage from the Gospel of John. This comes to us from John chapter 5. This will probably be a familiar story to most of us. It says After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethsaida, in Hebrew, which has five colonnades, and within these lay a large number of the sick, blind lame and paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water and then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment they had one man was there who had been sick for 38 years when jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time he said to him do you want to get well Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Today is Christ the King Sunday. Sunday. Today is the culmination of our entire church year. And I like to think about this moment not so much as a kind of cycle of events that we just keep repeating and coming back to over and over again. I think it's, it's helpful for us to think of this like, like an upward spiral, that the more we engage in these rhythms and these seasons and these practices, the year is all leading us to this moment, this an announcement that Jesus rules and reigns as king, that Christ is enthroned on our hearts and over the world. And every season of the church's year has led us to this moment. All of the feelings that we felt, the expectation of seasons, the reflecting of seasons, the joy and the growth and the sadness and the penitence, all of it is wrapped up here in this moment of Christ the King Sunday. And of course, like everything else in our world, there's a kind of tension that we should feel, a tension that we should be aware of, and it is while we are called to celebrate, there are still things that we ought to grieve. We grieve today the ways that we have failed to live as if Christ, is king. We grieve those things that we've done, those things that we have left undone. As one confession states it, those things that have been done on our behalf by the authorities and by the powers who claim Christ as king and then act in ways that are contrary to that reality. And yet we're still called to celebrate. We're still called to take seriously this moment, to celebrate today in ways that rightly acknowledge Christ is king, to rightly acknowledge Christ's rule and reign in our lives. The Gospel today, John 18, it takes us straight to the heart of this tension. For one, this text about Jesus coming before Pilate, it's this beautiful announcement of Christ's kingdom and the way in which Christ rules in the world. But this text has also been used, if you're paying attention, In some pretty horrific ways throughout our history, Uh, Christians throughout time and space have actually used these texts to oppress the Jewish people, and I was going to say a lot about that this morning, and how we recognize that, and what that means for us, and how we should respond, but let me just say this, if someone reads this text to you and says, see, it was the Jews who handed Jesus over, just tell them, you're full of crap. Bless them in the name of Jesus and move on. (laughs) Jesus makes, he makes a couple of astonishing claims here, right? One of them being, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, I'm not from around here, and neither are my followers. But one of the ways that we've heard this and we've believed this is that God's kingdom, because it's not of this world, His kingdom is only spiritual. That his kingdom is only concerned with salvation of souls. That in some ways the kingdom actually isn't concerned about the physical world, about the conditions in which we live. And I think that's a misread of what it means for Christ's kingdom to not be of this world. This isn't what actually happens in the world, that Christ cares about how we organize ourselves. Christ cares about the systems and the institutions that are used to organize our kind of common life together. So this isn't what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying his kingdom is not of this world, not because it isn't in the world, but because it's unrecognizable by those who call themselves kings and rulers, those who rule by violence and control and domination, which is how every king throughout the history of humanity has known how to rule. Jesus says to Pilate, I don't rule that way, the way that other kings rule. And so, of course, Pilate, he's confused by this, and so he responds, So, you are a king? It doesn't make any sense to him. Pilate, like most of us, he's unable to identify this kind of king because whatever Jesus means when he says king, and whatever Pilate means when Pilate says king, they're certainly not the same thing. And not just different meanings, but meanings that are actually opposed to one another. Pilate says king, and he means someone who has the power to have their will forced and imposed on his subjects that the people he rules over. And this is oftentimes what we mean when we say king, that when we say king, we mean someone who has the power to get others to do for you the things you want them to do. But Jesus says king and says that his kingship is based on testifying to the truth, It's not based on domination. It's not based on violence, on conquering. His kingdom, the fact that he is a king, hinges on this fact, that he testifies to the truth, that he bears witness to that thing that is the most real, the most true about us. So we could say Christ's kingship is not forceful, but it is true. It's not imposed on us or enforced on us from above. It's not violent or dominating. Christ's kingship is true in that it is the realest thing about you, the grounding reality of all existence. I appreciated so much what Father Brent said to open our service today, that what if when we say Christ is king, it actually caused us to treat one another differently? And that's so much at the heart of today's message of what this day is all about. What it means for Jesus to be king is that he knows the realest, truest, most elemental thing about who you are. That you are beloved. This means that Christ is king in our lives. Again, not because of power or domination, but because he as the creator becomes the created. That Christ joins us in our humanity and conquers all things, even death itself. It means that Christ is true in the sense that he is the one who is fully divine, but also fully human. And he's the one who announces that the reality of all things has its source and its life in God. Still, we have a long, complicated history with learning how to talk about Christ as king and lord and ruler and the one who reigns, especially in America, right? We, we are the anti-king people, and so we announce that Christ is king, but we're like, ah, but not like that, right? There's a reflex toward what it means to say that Christ is king, And so what we've done oftentimes is we just take our experiences of power, our experiences of authority, and we just apply those things to Christ in an infinite degree. Are you following me? We don't like to talk about kings and lords. They're too monolithic And so we say, well, we know something of what it is for authority to exist in our lives. We know something of what it is to either experience power or be on the underside of power, and we take all those collective experiences and say, that must be something of what it's like for Christ to be king. To say it another way, we've often believed that God is just the one with the most power among other less powerful beings. This is how we think about power. But God is not just the one with more power than I have. God is almighty, which is something different altogether. It means that God is the source of all true power in our lives. Pope Pius XI, he's the one who instituted this day of Christ the King in 1925, which is, it's interesting to think that my grandfather was alive, like when a, a Church holiday was established it wasn't that long ago? 1925. And as he's establishing this holiday of Christ the King, he's saying much of the same thing that we're saying today. He says that Christ is king, of course, because he is true in that Christ has taken on our humanity, that Christ has conquered death. But when he defines what it means for Christ to rule in our lives, to rule as king. What he does is appeal to all of the experiences with ruling and with power and authority that we're familiar with. So again, he says that Christ's rule is judicial. He says that Christ's rule is legislative. He says that it has, has legal power. It, it even has a kind of martial or, or policing presence in our lives. Again, all of the powers we experience day to day, just bigger, just more, just unbounded. We can see, hopefully, how this is nonsense when we talk about God. But it's nonsense that, honestly, we've believed for a long time. The problem with using these kinds of terms to identify Christ's kingdom, words like judicial and legal and executive, Is that if we're not careful, one of the things that we'll do is actually trick ourselves into thinking that these systems we're familiar with, judicial systems, legal systems, executive systems, that somehow these are God-ordained because they show us something about God. And that's not true. We might say that it's imperfect, but it's still established as part of God's kingdom, Because again, if we think of God as ruling in ways that are legislative and judicial, executive, then when we see those systems presented in our world, we think there's some inherent goodness to them. And so one of the things that we end up doing is we start to prefer our institutions, thinking that... They show us something of how God is and who God is. And then we end up protecting institutions rather than the people the institutions are designed to care for. This is going to not go your way here in a few minutes, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But but stay with me. (laughs) But see, this is why we should be weary of anyone who tends to speak for the institution, and never turn around and speak to the institution. This is what we see in the lives of the prophets. The prophets are the ones who live outside of the city. But what do the prophets do? They don't just critique. They don't just try to tear down. The prophets are the ones who call people back to who they really are. The prophets are the ones who say, no, no, no. There is a deeper reality at work here There is a person, there is a people that God has called you to be. And let's return back to that thing. What we celebrate today is that Christ's lordship and rule and reign is different than all the other kingdoms and rulers and lords and authorities and institutions. Christ is the one who rules not by domination not by destruction, but by self-giving love. Christ rules by giving himself to us once and for all and for eternity. We have to learn to distinguish between and untangle the systems and the rituals and the institutions that we've made and the kingdom of God. Hear me, this is not about being anti-institutional. It's about realizing that because God's kingdom plays by different rules, we should be suspicious of anyone who promises to give us what only belongs to God. Even issues like justice are hard for us to understand in this way. We tend to think about justice as very concrete, as immovable, as fixed. And in reality, justice belongs only to the realm and to the rule of God. We will never see and experience justice in its fullness. Because we belong in this space to the kingdoms of this world. And so justice, it turns out, is actually much more fluid than it is concrete. Simone Vey, who, you've heard us talk about before, she defines justice like this. She says that justice is a fugitive from the camp of the conquerors. This means that justice is never located in a specific place other than wherever the conquerors are not. That's where justice exists. Why? Because conquerors, the pilots, They only know how to rule through domination and through control and through ownership. And these things can never belong in the realm of justice. So Simone Weil says, we must be ever ready to change sides. Ever ready to change sides. Which means in those moments when we are so certain that we are right, you should be suspicious of yourself. This also means that because justice is the work of God's kingdom, the best that we can hope for this side of eternity is not justice, but proximate justice. Justice that's near justice. Justice that is almost justice. We can work and move toward and try to exist in those spaces, but then we celebrate that victory and we keep working. We keep Moving, why? Because we didn't experience justice, we experienced proximate justice. But we know that true justice only exists in the realm of God. It's not perfect, but it's close. And one of the issues with our pursuit of justice is that it also makes us quick to criticize things like empire and institution. It's also made us quick to identify Jesus in abstractions like the marginalized or the outsider. Not because Christ isn't there, that's precisely where Christ promised to be, but because we've started to prefer these abstractions to real, particular people. So when we cut to the root of it, our criticism of empire, our criticism of systems and our criticism of institution, it's really not about an openness to Jesus and the kingdom. It's really about our hatred for the people that we're we're associated with. It's really about a hatred of the people with power and the people with privilege and the people who are in control. And what we find is that we don't so much love God and love our neighbor as much as we despise the world and the systems and the institutions that we've been born into. Some of us were born on the underside of power and we know what it is to be oppressed. Some of us were born right into the center, right into the heart of power, and we have seen and witnessed its emptiness. But whatever the case, what matters isn't hatred for the centers of power, or the people who are powerful. We have to love people. We have to recognize that God calls us to love him and to love our neighbor. We have to recognize that abstractions like the oppressed and the marginalized are the work of the enemy. This has to be particular. At some point, we have to distinguish between the work of building up the kingdom of God versus tearing down the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is built on the truth of loving God and loving our neighbor. The kingdoms of this world thrive on distraction. They thrive on abstraction. And the kingdoms of this world thrive on teaching us a loveless language of critique. A lot of us are well-versed in this language of privilege and power and critique and we think that we're being prophetic by calling out the ones who are privileged and are powerful. But there's nothing prophetic about critique if it isn't rooted in the truth that is the love of God and the love of our neighbors. If we're not careful, all we'll serve is a tearing down of the kingdoms of this world and it isn't enough. It's not enough just to want to see the kingdoms of this world torn down. We have to want to see the kingdom of God built up. We don't have time today, but this is so much of what we see in our Old Testament text in 2 Samuel. And this is 2 Samuel 23. These are the dying words of King David. And he says a lot about himself and about who he is and how important he is. And then he makes this shift into talking about God as the rock of Israel. Talking about God as the one who sustains these people that he has led. And so in this moment, David is dying. And here's the point. David has to die in order for Christ to be born. The rule of David has to come to an end before the rule and the reign of Christ can be established. And we can take comfort in that because as the rule and reign of what you know and the institutions that you trust come to an end, it's really just making room for Christ to be born. But here's the key. When those institutions crumble, when the rule and reign of what you know starts to come apart, it only makes room for Christ to be born so long as we, as the people of God, are there to serve as the midwives, to usher in the kingdom of God. If we're not, if we aren't there, people who are willing to labor in our love for God and for our neighbor, if we aren't there, then all we've done is learn the language of critique. And we've not given ourselves lovingly to God and to our neighbor. Deep breath. I know this is a lot. Next week begins the season of Advent. It's a season that's all about Christ being born into our lives. But like David, Christ and his kingdom being born into our lives will require the death of us. Advent is not a celebratory season. It's not the expectation moving into Christmas. Advent is a penitential season. It's a season of hope, to be sure, but a season that requires us to be honest about the ways in which we've resisted Christ's coming into our lives. It will require the death of us. It will require the death of our systems and our institutions that we've put so much trust in. But that doesn't mean that the rule of Christ is about anarchy. Again, this isn't about burning it all down, this isn't about being anti institutional. Jesus' claim that his kingdom isn't of this world doesn't mean he doesn't care about people's bodies or the physical world or our politics. Our politics are all about the ways in which we organize and order our bodies, the conditions of life that we make for one another and how we live alongside one another. To be sure, Christ cares about those things. This isn't about anarchy. It's not about burning it all down. Institutions on some level are required in order to think about groups and not just individuals, which is something we are starved for in America. But the coming of God will inevitably mean this. It is the coming apart of the world as we've designed it so that the world as God imagines it can flourish. So we have to learn what David does, that God's promises, that God's faithfulness to us, to God's people are more sure than our attempts at ruling in the ways only God can. To be sure whatever we make will come down. Whatever institution, movement, political party, protest that you think matters, those things can die and God's will still be accomplished in the world. That's not to say we shouldn't get caught up in causes and protests and movements. We all need to use whatever voice God has given us For the sake of other people but we have to remember that they are penultimate they're more of a means than an end nothing more they won't last and that's good news to wrap up today i want us to take a look at this is the new testament text for today, out of a book that I try not to spend a whole lot of time in, but sometimes you can't avoid it forever. Revelation. <laughs> and this is the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. John to the seven churches in Asia Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his god and father the glory and dominion and his forever and ever amen look He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. It's easy to read this text and to not hear the promise that it makes. If we do hear a promise, it's likely that we only hear a promise of revenge or a promise of punishment. Remember that line that says all will mourn over him. Another translation says that all will wail but we can't read it as a promise of revenge. And we can't read it that way because of who we know is coming. Christ himself is the one who is returning, the firstborn of the dead, as the text says, the faithful witness of the truth, of the most real thing about you and me. And this line, all will wail, it's hard to make sense of, but I think it's important that we At least try to get it right. All will wail, not because of revenge, but as a promise of reconciliation, a promise of what God will make right, that even those who wounded God will answer for it, but they'll answer for it in a way that will heal them of the things that they've done, not punish them. Christ isn't coming back to do to them what they did to him. That's a narrative of redemptive violence that we know is false, that doesn't work. Christ is coming back so that the wounds that they made in him can be revealed for their healing. And what are those wounds? Often, those wounds are the ways that we mar the image of God in one another and even in ourselves. And to be healed now is to see the fullness of the image of God in the humanity of others, and also seeing the fullness of God's humanity in Christ. And here is the difficult but good news. As the text says, all tribes, all people which is to say, this isn't just about a f- the few against the many. This isn't about the, the faithful remnant against the unfaithful masses. This is about the one who is true, revealing all that is false. Christ comes back first in a way that reveals how we have all been false to him. How we have all pierced him by not loving God by not loving our neighbor, by marring the image of God born up in one another. Whatever we've done to each other, we've done to Christ. Even the wrongs that we've done to ourselves. And so the wailing comes. All tribes will wail, all people, will wail, but it doesn't last. Christ's coming culminates in him, wiping away every tear from our eyes. But even in letting all these things die in us, like David, we don't have to be afraid of the dying. Even in our dying, Christ, remember, is the firstborn of the dead, We can die to everything that is false in us, every false institution and every false system, everything that is false in us. We can let it die because Christ is with us in our dying and He is the firstborn of the dead. We can die to all that is false, knowing that Christ is there to tell us the truth. Advent is coming. A new year starts next week. But celebrating Christ the King, it isn't about some far-off, distant event in the future. Christ, as the firstborn of the dead, continues to be born in us again and again, even in small, seemingly insignificant ways, like a baby in a manger, This Advent, Christ comes to us in smallness over and over and over again, and not just once, but always. Not with violence or with force or demands. Not as a conqueror, but as the lamb who was slain. As the one who witnesses to the truth of who God is and has made us to be, which is beloved. If all this has felt like too much, like too abstract, let me say it all this way. The coming of Christ's kingdom, a sign that God's power is present, is that Christ is the one who breaks the Sabbath rules that we've made in order to cure the sick man. That's what the coming of Christ's kingdom looks like. Not just a spiritual arrival, but a breaking through of all of the false rules that we've made that actually harm people. Christ breaks through that. He breaks through whatever we've made of the Sabbath in order to fulfill the Sabbath, to embody what the Sabbath really means by healing the sick, the sick that we aren't caring for because we're too concerned with keeping our rules. That's what it means for Christ to come as king. So the good news today is that you can die and the kingdoms of this world can die, but know that no good thing will be lost. Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And no matter where you are, Christ is coming for you. Amen.